Welcome. We're Kevin Smith and Mark Bleicher from Arate Incident Response. We're excited to share actual incident response cases, chat about IT security, and introduce you to the most influential players in the industry. With that, let's get moving. And thanks for joining this episode of Security Superpowers. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Security Superpowers with me, Kevin Smith, and Mark Bleicher. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Kevin. Hey, uh, today we have a very special guest who's been in the incident response industry for over 15 years. He's a computer information systems graduate from Bentley University in Waltham, Massachusetts. He helped found the Electronic Discovery Lab for Deloitte, has performed forensics on some of the largest litigation cases in history. Please welcome one of our very own to Security Superpowers, a director in digital forensics and incident response for Arite. Mr. Stephen Ramey. Welcome, Steve. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Mark. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. I know your time's super valuable, so uh, we'll jump right in here. Hey, everyone is talking about the increased risk of remote working during the COVID-19 outbreak. Could you share with us uh, some of your observations from the front lines? Absolutely. You know, we've seen a ton of uh, ransomware over the last several months, and a lot of the source has is uh, attributed to you know three three main categories. Uh, the first is exposed RDP or remote desktop protocol services. Uh, the second area is abuse of VPN credentials, especially VPNs without multi-factor authentication. And the third area that we've seen just recently in the last about thirty to forty-five days is an uptick in drive-by downloads. Drive-by downloads. Like, what does that mean? Drive-by download really happens in, in two, two shapes. Uh, the first is a user is tricked into clicking a link to download and, and install some type of program. Uh, it's commonly seen with like you get a pop-up on your web browser and it says your, your browser's out of date. Download the patch now. Oh, my gosh. If you're not used to those kinds of alerts, this is something that will hook most people that uh, that feel as though, hey, I, I better run this update. I better get the security patch. Um, you know, like what's the what's the skill set uh, of the people that are typically falling for this? I mean, is it is it across the board? Are there typically people that say, hey, I'm a great engineer, but I'm terrible with computers? Who do you see uh, are falling for this? Pretty much everybody. Anybody's susceptible to it. Um, you know, a lot of times you see less security oriented personnel, but even, even we fall victim to it as well. Um, the, the attackers are always looking at you know, how do we trick people? What, what message do we need to send? What do we need to put into this scheme to make it appear as legit as possible to get the maximum amount of people to fall victim to it? Sure. Is it web-based? I mean, do they, you know, load, the payload on a website that people might stumble upon, or, or are you finding that the it's primarily coming through email? Yeah, it can uh, it can load it on websites. You could be you know through one of those malicious advertisements that pop up on your web browser. I mean, sometimes these drive-by downloads happen in behind the scenes. So there's um, you know attack that takes place on vulnerable websites where once you navigate to that and it loads you know, some type of JavaScript in the background. That's the actual exploit that gets downloaded unknowingly to your system. So these these can occur really from a majority of places. Well, the, the the interesting piece is that these uh these uh, threat actors these hackers are actually compromising legit websites to host their malicious payloads. 
instead of using you know free services like Pastebin or uh, free accounts on Dropbox. So it's interesting to see how crafty these these individuals are becoming to host their malicious content to try to not get caught. So so they're hijacking websites. Do you find that they're they're they just basically compromise the back end? Like, are we looking at like a like a WordPress site or I mean, so there's so they've already jacked into somebody else's uh, system, right? I mean, for the most part, yeah, pretty much. It's it's a multi a multi phased attack. They they go and compromise a website to host the payload, and then in other web code they reference that hosted site the the site hosting the payload. So when, you know, for example, I were to navigate to a certain website, the malicious advertisement would pop up on my screen. I would click download, run that application to patch my browser, and it would call out to that other um, real website to download that payload. And that second party doesn't even know that payload's on their website because the time, as soon as that payload's downloaded and infected, infects that system, those hackers go and remove it from from their site so they try to hide their tracks as uh, quickly as possible oh my gosh you know and i want to kind of dive into this a little bit more um i've seen where they've actually purchased domains so let's just say there's a website uh kevin's bakery i've seen where threat actors purchase domains with maybe like one set of you know the letters rearranged right so like when, at first glance it looks just like a legitimate a, a legitimate website yeah like uh replacing r and n with m yeah you know those two characters together or l's with ones or a capital i instead of a lowercase l is are you seeing are you seeing some instances where that's a, actually w- one of the the methods that they're using to deploy their payload we haven't observed that uh for for ransomware uh, but we do see a lot of that spoofing uh, when it comes to business email compromises. Gotcha. So they they send an email out to uh, a, an unsuspecting person from a domain that appears um, similar to one they've already interacted with, mm-hmm. and that tricks a lot of people into giving credentials or you know intercepting wire transfers and having those redirected into attacker controlled accounts. Got it, Mark. You you um you're working on these just as much as Steve is. And, and um, my curiosity is you've got to have some, some thoughts on what these customers, like the profile of these customers, what what size customer are we looking at? Are we across the board again, or are we, are there a specific industry? Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's across the board. I mean, it's impacting everyone from, you know, a two to three person small accounting firm to, you know, large enterprise organizations. Um, I'd say whenever I see, uh, you know, a blog or somebody speaking about, you know, COVID and the cyber risk with a more remote workforce, I always think that, you know, to me, I, I know what that means, but to everyone else, you know, you never see anything, um, you know, explaining actually why there's heightened risk or why there's, you know, more attacks happening. So maybe we can dive into that. And, you know, I think something that's important that everybody understand is, you know, it's not COVID. COVID isn't, you know, infecting the the cyber world like it is, um, you know, it's causing, a, you know, wreaking havoc on everybody. But it's more of I, some of the things you got to think about is, 
you know, there was all these mandates back when um, COVID was, you know, first in its full swing back in March. And, uh, you know, a lot of organizations were forced to work remotely where up until that point that they were used to being in an office every day. That's where their operations were. That's where their IT was. So having to quickly pivot into now having a full remote workforce, you have that, you know, times thousands or, you know, even millions of people out there. And you're going to have, you know, you're setting up these infrastructures to be able to support a remote workforce. There's going to be a lot of oversight. So I think that's what people, you know, really need to consider. And that's the discussions I don't see happening. You no, know, why, what is the actual reason behind these heightened risks? So. Sure. And, and would you agree? And, and Steve, I'm going to pivot over to you. I mean, is it, Back in March, I mean, it, it seemed like there was a tsunami of of companies just switching over to remote. I mean, they were at work on Friday that that following Monday, they were running remote. Yeah, you know, we've seen a uptick in uh, use of RDP uh, services. We saw a lot of TeamViewer and, and other remote access technologies. Log me in, go to my PC, and we also saw the um, the traditional uh, VPN. We responded to a few engagements where you know the client was was uh, you know fully secured. Uh, COVID hits, and then they had to you know con- reconfigure their VPN because originally it was configured for multi-factor authentication and a subset of IT professionals to be able to remote in at odd hours of the day to perform services. Because they had to add so many new people to the VPN, they disabled multi-factor authentication. Adding, they added a tremendous amount of accounts, and just in that small time frame, an attacker was able to breach the VPN using a, a credential stuffing attack, and they were able to um, gain access and, and wreak havoc through the network. So we've seen we've seen a ton uh, a ton of of ways that these companies have responded just to enable their workforces um, remote access, but at the same time, they are doing this so fast, a corner gets cut. Or they don't think through the security ramifications if if they don't enable a certain uh, feature, and these hackers are are waiting. They're they're actively scanning the internet, um, all these different IP addresses all across the um, all across the world. And once they find that hole, they don't wait on it. They attack. And so companies don't realize that all of this is you know a very fluid process for these attackers. And once they make that decision to disable a certain security or add a brand new service without fully securing it, these attackers find it. And that's when they really uh, sink their teeth into it. You had mentioned uh, something called credential stuffing. What, what is that? It's taking a, a known username and a matched password and using that, that combination of information and attempting it on many different sites. So take, for example, you know, many years ago when LinkedIn was hacked, the database was um, the database of user credentials was, you know, for sale on the um, dark web. A couple of hackers have found it and some were able to reverse the hash of the password to clear text. And so I was part of that hack. You know, my information was in there and my password is in there and the password I use, I don't use anymore. But that password was used for multiple accounts. So the hackers had my email address and at the time my clear text password. They could have went to MySpace. They could have went to Facebook. They could have went to ESPN. They could have went to a number of sites where my email was registered and I probably used that same password. 
and having that good combination from LinkedIn's dump, they could attempt to log in as me mm-hmm. on multiple different sites. The worst thing that would happen is that the, the credentials would fail or they would be successful. So the credential stuffing attack is something that we've seen uh, an uptick in mm-hmm. uh, within the last year or two, mainly because so many organizations are being hacked and these these user profiles are being you know sold on the dark market. Uh, the databases are recovered and a lot of uh, security researchers are aggregating these databases together, really simplifying you know the, the treasure trove of information for these hackers to build credential stuffing uh, attacks from. Do they legit put in that kind of research just to to leverage that information? It's a it's a great question. Um, you know, most most breaches that we investigate are crimes of opportunity. They're not really targeted. Uh, these hackers find a a weak link in that chain and they exploit it. Mm-hmm. In the rare instances, there are specific targets that that do um, that these hackers do go after. And they build these these social profiles. And there's a ton of information out there about everyone because of social media, because of LinkedIn, because of blog posts and uh, other marketing materials that go on the web. So you know, simple simply using Google, you can pull information up about a lot of people, and then you can start to pivot from that information. So so really, you know, Kevin, to your your question, uh, the long answer is maybe. You know, we really don't know how crafty these, these uh, hackers are or, or what type of analytics are being run across the, the stolen sets of information. The shorter answer is definitely, you know, as, as, these, as the, the, the price for um, computing power decreases um, and the available information increases, I can imagine that these hackers are going to start building some neural networks to, to sift through all the data that's been stolen, that's publicly available through, through Google and other search engines to really pinpoint profiles on individuals. And if you think about it from a, a ransomware perspective, that's an easy way to get into organizations. From a business email compromise perspective, that's an easy way to build phishing campaigns that, that really are, are targeted to a specific individuals. And then even at that you know, nation state, that, that nation sponsored level, you can build a lot of information um, about these people to either blackmail them and extort them or to really tailor a type of phishing uh, campaign against them or against uh, people surrounding them that uh, could help them help the uh, hackers achieve their objectives. If you listen to our previous episode, uh, Mark touched on some interesting points regarding threat actors in general. And, you know, so my question, you know, just to kind of wrap it up is, man, that seems like a lot of research, but then we kind of, Fast forward to just this point here, and as you connected some of the dots there, these threat actors are certainly more sophisticated. They've got a lot more, uh, to your point, computing power. They've got access to databases and, and, um, you know, even Mark uh, confirmed last time that there was a ticketing system, you know, that they use ticketing systems. So this is a group of people typically depending on the, you know, the size of the company that they're attacking. I mean, they could literally coordinate their efforts, connect all the dots um, and leverage that, um, you know, and, and Mark was, you know, pretty specific about that. Yeah. I mean, I think what I said last time, and this is true is a lot of these groups, particularly with ransomware, they're 
they're run better than some Fortune 50 software companies as far as the support they provide and the responsiveness. So they are, they're very coordinated. They're very organized on their end. I mean, some groups more so than others, they do their research. I mean, this is big money to them. So, you know, the work they put in beforehand is it's all for a reason because the ultimate, you know, ransom demand or payoff to them, that's, that's what matters. So it's like anything we do, we're, we're going to put in the, the effort beforehand to um, ensure that we meet our objective. It's the same thing with them. They're criminals, but this is a legitimate job to them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, that's um, what makes our efforts uh, e- either resolving these incidents um, difficult uh, because we're, we're, we're literally fighting a formidable foe, but let's just kind of pivot back to the vectors here. Um, Steve, you talked about uh, exposed RDP services. Now, l- if we jumped into our time machine and went back, I don't know, you know, it's eight years, maybe um, it, it seemed like having maybe 10 years, it, it seemed like having open RDP ports uh, available on the internet, people just aren't getting that memo yet. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's the same as 10 years ago. It was uh, socially acceptable to park your car in a parking lot with your windows down and lock your doors and people would leave the contents of your car alone. Nowadays, it's, it's a little trickier. You know, somebody's going to rummage through it, especially if you have electronics on your dash. Like maybe you leave your cell phone in plain sight. So somebody is prob- most likely going to, you know, go into your car because your windows are down. It's easily accessible. Same thing with RDP. If you see that port that's available, um, you know, these, these hackers are going to bang on that, that port until they can, they can get in. The craziest piece about it is that RDP being a great technology to use within your organization, it doesn't really have that much security protection built into it. So if, if you have an exposed port across the Internet, and somebody tries a brute force attack against that um, that system, they can try that thing forever. They can sit there and just bang on that door until they find the correct username and password to to get into it. Um, the system administrators would never know. You know, most of them don't check their security logs that frequently to to analyze them to see if they are being brute forced. Um, most organizations think by changing the default port they can't be found. That's not true at all. Hmm. I was just going to ask that question. Yeah. yeah, that's it's one of my favorite uh, my favorite <laughs> statements on on our scoping calls. It's like, hey, do you use RDP? And they say yes, but it's on a different port. It's not the default port. So, okay, you've been hacked. That's usually the first thought. I don't <laughs> say it out loud, but that's my my first thought. <laughs> um, and so you know, RDP it's it's a, a great a great service. It's just not something that should be publicly facing. It's very hard to secure by itself. Um, this way using VPN, you know, VPN has the ability to, to auto set if, you know, failed on three tries or five tries with the wrong username and password, go right ahead. Uh, the other crazy thing about RDP services, you know, back to the, the comment earlier about, about, uh, all these different scanning technologies across the internet that are, are literally indexing all the open ports per IP address and trying to figure out what services are available. There's this one, you know, company called Shodan. And they will actually take a screenshot. So if they detect a port 3389 is open, the default port for RDP, they'll take a screenshot of the 
the actual command prompt or the uh, the, the desktop display. Um, and so most of the time you'll see the last logged on user. Maybe it's administrator, maybe it's a custom name. So now no one way. piece of the puzzle is already known. You have a, a legit username. So now all they need to do is enumerate through passwords. And with, again, with going back to the credential stuffing attacks, you have the username. Let's take the top 30 or top 50 or top 5,000 passwords from clear text from all those databases and just attempt them. And there's probably a high percentage chance that that password will work with that username. You have to ask the, the question, are they doing what they're doing for good or evil? I mean, when they do something like that, is it, is it just like public shaming? Is that why they're doing that? <laughs> it's, they, it's, it's easy. Well, I mean, I can't speak to their specific business model, but from a, a security perspective, Yes, it's 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 intended to to open the knowledge to show that all this information exists out there, and they're just categorizing it. You know, same thing with Google. It's there's no difference between what Shodan puts out and what Google puts mm-hmm. out. Your website, you want to have found in a in a uh, search engine, and so you put certain tags on your on your HTML code on your website to have these search engines, which are automatically scanning all the different pages out there. Um, to, to find an index and then hopefully, you know, increase your popularity inside Google or whichever search engine. It's the same concept. Shodan is the Google of Internet of Things devices, mm. and you have extremely powerful search functionality. So from a security perspective, you have the ability to see what your organization looks like in the public's view. Hmm. Um, the other side of that, you know, to your point, is yes, this information can be used in a very malicious intent. Hackers do use it to gain a quick understanding of services that might be available. And once they once they have that list, they can then go and check if those hosts are still online, if those services are being broadcasted, and that's when they can start to plan their attack. Again, I mean, these are the kind of tools that we're fighting. Um, they're great, and believe me, I, I you know I've used Shodan multiple times, especially on those um, finicky Linux servers that we're trying to set up, uh, you know, on our own personal time, just to whatever, you know, host your own personal website, maybe have a Minecraft server, whatever, right? You know, it, it, it you just want to make sure that you're secure. You, you use a tool like Shodan to, to uncover any, any risks, but yeah, the, the very same thing that that's used for, uh, for doing good you, is certainly going to be uncovering, um, you know, some vulnerabilities. It, it, it is, I mean, I think we could probably talk for hours on this, this topic in terms of the vectors that are being used just in these three buckets alone. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious the IT professionals and, and man, I, I, I want to be very cautious here because I don't want to beat on the, the, the very folks that are enabling, um, the kind of commerce that we're engaged in every single day. Uh, operationally, I know that that uh, that many of these networks are tremendously complex. What what are your recommendations, Steve? On you know, if you could just give a couple of magic bullets uh, to these IT folks, um, what would you, what advice would you give them? Pen test. Pen test, pen test, pen test. You know, a, a lot of the low-hanging fruit that we see as the entry point 
should be discovered in some type of pen test or vulnerability scan, both internally and externally. And a lot of that can be mitigated right off the bat. Um, so it should be a non-starter for many organizations. Mm-hmm. The downside to that, pen tests cost money. Um, not having you know, a reputable firm that can help with the rules of engagement to really figure out what it is that that company needs you know, can drive costs up. We don't see that too often, but you know, pen tests are a black box and mm-hmm. organizations that don't have security teams, that don't practice security, that don't really understand this world could be taken advantage of. Um, you know, put all that aside, you know, pen tests are definitely the way to, to go. Vulnerability scans are. Mm-hmm. Uh, even calling somebody, a company like Arite, you know, with their proactive services, uh, just to be able to have that conversation. Just to, to get that, you know, consultation of this is how it's set up. What are your initial thoughts? And, you know, any of our team would be able to get on any call with just a little bit of information and tell you uh, exactly what a hacker would think, how they would might target your, your organization. And that in itself is valuable because then the, the IT professional can just leave that conversation and go start to fix. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to hire anyone. A 15, 20, 30, 45-minute conversation could give them enough of a starting point to look at their own organization, uh, secure it, and then bring in, um, you know, that pen test to help um, identify any additional gaps. Yeah, a great. That's great advice. And and you know, there's a lot of companies, a small, especially your smaller organizations, where the the IT guy or gal is, um, you know, googling many of the answers, right? Just to just to put the stuff together. I would, you know, I would agree with you that just getting a second opinion is by far the smartest thing that you can do. And, you know, and and let's just pivot just a touch more here. Um, you had mentioned, you know, the, the companies themselves are going to uh, get attacked. They're going to they're going to get scanned. They're going to be profiled. Um tremendous risk out there for, for a small to mid who doesn't spend a lot of time on security. Um, and I'm going to throw this over to Mark. There are carrier solutions. I know that they are brainstorming all the time about what can we do to get ahead of this eight ball? Because you mentioned uh, on our last episode, it's an epidemic you know, these encryption attacks and, and security events in general are just, they're epidemic. They're running uh, full bore. My own personal experience and Mark, I'd love your comments on this. My own personal experience is that they're really trying to find a very creative way to communicate back to the businesses uh, that they're trying to protect um, by developing programs that address that. Right. Yeah. What are you seeing um, specifically in, you know, I know you talk to carriers all the time. What what are your, what's the temperature gauge on priority? Where does this live in the priority of things for carriers? I, I think probably over the last year, this is, I mean, a top priority. I mean, we even started working with a, a few carriers over the last year. We provide them with our intelligence list, um, Specifically, this is for to address ransomware. So, the bots that we're tracking um, that we usually see is the the stage one or the the pre phase to a ransomware attack. So, getting them this um, information so they can then get to their insureds if somebody you know that we find on that list that we provide to them is actually 
you know, holds a policy, if they can say, hey, you know, we found uh, this, you know, trick bot infection in your environment here. Well, if they can get that uh, remediated quickly, and we may have just saved, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars from uh, an impending ransomware attack. Some other things that, um, you know, we're doing and working with them is understanding when there's like a new insured that's applying for a policy, the questions that they're asking um, about their environment. Do they have certain security measures in place? Um, so things as simple as simple asset control, that, those are, you know, what question I often see on the uh, the applicant um, list or the, the questions that they ask the applicants rather. Um, so they really want to understand. It's not so much of uh, just a, a self-checklist. They really are I'm seeing them starting to move in the direction of asking some of the things that we would uncover during an investigation. So they're starting to take that proactive mindset. And to you know, Steve's point, um, pen tests are, are a big part of that. Anything that you can do ahead of uh, to be ahead of the curve, really, is things they're looking at. And then at the same time, how are we able to provide that? to um, everybody like in a, the least intrusive way that's not going to have any impact to their operations. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, no matter, no matter what security oftentimes infringes on operational goals, right? Um, it's an extra step, an, act, an, an additional password. One of the big things that, um, you know, we often recommend, and this is something we're starting to work with a few carriers on is getting, you know, advanced endpoint security into the hands of the insureds or in organizations who may not be able to uh, afford, you know, a solution like that. So we're being able, we've been able to provide that at a uh, reduced cost, particularly for certain industries like education and healthcare. Um, you know, that's one of the main tools we have in our arsenal when we're engaged to respond to a ransomware is, you know, we're obviously partners with Sentinel One, but really you have any EDR in place like CrowdStrike, Carbon Black, Endgame, something like that that gives you the visibility and advanced detection and protection, you know, that mm -hmm. your traditional antivirus doesn't provide is uh, always at the top of our recommendation list. Sure. It, it really is an extra set of eyes in the, at the end of the day. Steve, I have to ask. Nearly every customer that comes to the front door has software installed on their network, on their servers, on their endpoints. Um, typically, it's your traditional antivirus software. It's been on there. They get their downloads every single day, and, um, and they think they're protected. How are these threat actors getting around those pieces of software? Yeah, we we do see a lot of a lot of uh, the legacy AV products, and hmm. and I don't have the stats in front of me, but you know I would say ninety nine point nine percent of the time they are being bypassed. But once the uh, once the hackers get a interactive access to their systems, they can see what's running. You know, if it's a Semantic or McAfee or Sophos, they can they can then come back with additional payloads, additional additional configuration scripts to disable on the endpoint itself that antivirus. In some instances, we've seen these, uh, these uh, threat actors drop bat files, batch script files onto the systems where it actually unloaded hmm. the virus definitions of Windows Defender. And then once the virus definitions were unloaded, it disabled the process. 
And they use simple automation to spread that across the domain. So any system that was running Windows Defender as its only line of defense against malware, this script disabled it, allowing the hacker to, to deploy any of their um, you know, uh, additional payloads, whether it's installing their own customized malware or releasing ransomware. The main differentiator of, you know, outside of all the you know, strengths the EDR tools have, uh, the main differentiator is really, it gets down to the tamper-proof protection hmm. on the endpoint itself. The EDR tools, they establish that tamper-proof protection centrally through a, a, a console that's managed outside of the organization. The uh, traditional AV folks, the endpoint itself can manage the tamper-proof. So semantics and, and Sophos, you can actually right-click on the agent itself and click disable, click pause, click uninstall. You can't do that with Sentinel-1 and many of the other ones in their category. And that in itself uh, is, the, is the most powerful piece of that tool because that EDR tools will always have protection on that system. Whereas once attacker has administrator privileges, they can do whatever they want with those installed programs. Hmm. That is, um, um, it's encouraging. I think that uh, we are, as an organization, always looking for ways to communicate that we are now entering a, a phase in cybersecurity where we need to be better stewards of, of, of purveying this information back out to our customers. But more importantly, a, a call to all opera, you know, these it folks that are managing these complex systems, this is truly that, that time to be paying attention to more advanced means of monitoring and protecting networks. It's, I mean, I think given the fact that we have an enormous remote workforce, given the fact that there, that this, that's probably not going to change anytime soon. And the fact that these threat actors are just super motivated to research and take down those traditional uh, means of protecting endpoints. I think, um, you know, to your point, something as simple as a right click disable, you know, that, that the, the new generation of endpoint protection, they're thinking about that. Um, whereas traditional means of protection don't, uh, or didn't have to when they developed it. So all, all good points. So I think, you know, in closing, um, we have a lot of work to do, uh, both as um, a security team uh, that connects with these customers uh, by contract or by incident. Um, as IT professionals, we should be diving in and keeping up to date on what the threat actors are doing to get into our our systems. I think today's episode did a great job of uncovering those, you know, just even if those are just the low hanging fruit, I'm sure there's a list of a thousand other things that can be, uh, th th that they can do in order to protect themselves. Any, any closing thoughts, Steve? Uh, sure. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, in summary, we, we did talk about a lot of, uh, 
a lot of different topics today. And, and the, the main takeaways, uh, as Mark pointed out, uh, implementing an EDR tool, endpoint detection and response tool, will add significant value right off the bat um, once uh, once that's the, that's deployed through the organization. Um, and then in addition, you know, using older technologies, maintaining that theme of using older technologies, don't expose you know, services uh, through your firewall, you know, leverage remote access technologies that, that use multi-factor authentication that can enable your workforce to connect into your, you know, into your network um, to access those resources as necessary. Um, you know, those two alone will, will increase the security uh, tremendously uh, so you wouldn't be facing any type of, uh, you know, ransomware or any other type of unauthorized activity. All good advice. Super good advice. Well, thank you. Um, and on behalf of Mark and I both, we really, truly thank you for uh, taking time out of your schedule to, to spend time with us and, and share your, your knowledge. Um, we definitely would love to have you come back. Uh, we, you know, we, we touch on these kinds of topics all the time. And, um, and I know that you would bring huge value to our, uh, to, to my knowledge base for sure. And definitely to our listeners, uh, knowledge. So thank you again for joining us today. Thank you again, gentlemen, for having me. So Mark, I think, you know, that let's set it up. Um, first of all, Steve is just gave us a lot to think about, uh, moving forward, but, um, what do you think? Uh, about uh, our upcoming episode, what do you what would you like to what would you like to talk about next? So I think for our, our next episode, this is uh, we're at a great point here to discuss cyber intel, specifically our intel here at Arite and what's coming out of our fusion center, what we're doing with that data from a proactive standpoint, as well as how we leverage that during an incident. I think that would be something great to share with our listeners on the uh, next episode, and uh, would really. Uh, like to invite Steve back too, because again, he's there every day with us on the front lines. Sounds like a plan, Mark. And that'll do it for another episode of Security Superpowers with Mark Bleicher and me, Kevin Smith. As you heard from Mark, our next episode will cover threat intel and how we leverage that information during an incident. Thanks to Severine Fortin and Colin Hanks for making this production possible, and for you, our listeners, for sharing your time with us. Until next time. Thanks for joining us here on Security Superpowers.